kick is blocked. Appalachian State has stunned the college football world. One of the greatest upsets in sports history. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. High fly ball center field. to say it, fellas. Listen to this crowd. In your life have you seen anything like that? The flat of hand is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to show. Five seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! The great games of history and the voices who made them come alive. This is Behind the Mic with Doug Rice. On this edition of PRN's Behind the Mic, we are thrilled to have the voice of the reigning Stanley Stanley Cup champions, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, Dan Duva. Back in again to the corner, he centered, stoned, shanked at the right side by Howden, rebound side of the goal, they have scored! Howden did bank it home, Vegas wins in overtime! You heard all of those great calls in the opening to our podcast. Dan, we could put one that you got to make last year late right in there. It would fit perfectly. (laughs) Well, Doug, that is quite a compliment. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you. And uh, I will say that I'm I'm, uh, delighted to be in the position to make a call like that. You never know exactly how the moment will unfold and you try to capture it. And um, I'm I'm. Pretty proud of how we captured all of that on the Golden Knights radio broadcast. Thank I'll tell you, you what, while we're talking about it, we were going to say this for later on, but since we're already there, uh, let, let's go with this magic moment right here. They talk about dreaming. The Golden Knights are going to make that dream a reality. A devotion to destiny. Misfits to champions. The Vegas Golden Knights win the Stanley Cup in 2023. I know that probably never gets old hearing that. Dan, they were winning nine to three. So it's not like <laughs> it's not like there was drama at the end. Did you have time to think about maybe jot a note or something saying, I want to do this and this, or was all that spontaneous? The only thought that had come to mind in the time leading up to it, because not only was the game a blowout, they had just marched through the final. They uh, they nearly swept if they were leading game three with minutes left. Florida tied it one in overtime, but then Vegas won game four. And here was game five back at T-Mobile Arena. And they had never scored nine goals in a game before, ever, regular season, postseason. Here they are, biggest game ever. They scored nine. So uh, you couldn't help at some point along the way of start. you know, I tried to fight it back, to be honest with you, Doug. I didn't want to you know try to script anything, but I kept coming back to this is a team that is – about the people who live in Las Vegas. And while a lot of folks associate Las Vegas with the strip, casinos, gambling, jackpot, I didn't think that using any of those cliches would befit this championship. What did the people who have followed this team from the beginning really care about? And uh, it was the beginning when the players themselves created a team group chat called the Golden Misfits. And the Misfits moniker stuck. 
So uh, there are six original players still with the team for that championship, and five of the six were in the starting lineup. Bruce Cassidy, the coach, was not here at the beginning, of course. He'd just been in his first year with the Knights. But everybody recognizes, including Bruce Cassidy, the value of those misfits. And it captures the sense of Las Vegas, that a lot of people here have come from far-flung points to try to reinvent themselves. And so I thought from misfits to champions. So misfits was the only word that had come to mind. All the uh, the rest of it came in the moment. But it was... Uh, you know, just before you heard that clip, they talk about dreaming and the Golden Knights are going to make that dream a reality. That's a little bit of a call to Bruce Springsteen from my native New Jersey. Badlands, talk about a dream, try to make it real. Uh, and just before that, I had I wanted to point out Bill Foley, the owner of the Golden Knights, uh, said uh, before the Knights ever played a game that Vegas would win a championship in six years. Cup in six, he said. So, I, well, what is that? Is that a prediction? Is that a promise a guarantee it's not quite any of those things it was a, a charge bill foley is a west point graduate so I, I thought to myself bill foley issued the noble charge uh again that was just in the moment cup in six and then you hear the rest of it uh you know they talk about dreaming and and the rest and uh, a lot of the point is that you know bill foley spoke those words but a lot of work had to get put into it so that's i guess where the devotion to destiny came to be and then of course the Vegas Golden Knights win the Stanley Cup and I knew that I wanted to say it before the horn sounded because if the horn sounded and then I tried to say everything you wouldn't hear it so I made sure I got it in under the clock you hit the post you know Doug that's you, did, you did you walked it up like introducing <laughs> Casey and the Sunshine Band uh, <laughs> you gotta be a radio person to get that and I love that before we get into your story about how you escaped the swamps of New Jersey to be the play-by-play voice of the Golden Knights the the birth of this team I find fascinating. I was in Vegas a couple of weeks ago and talking with Sally Gaughan, who uh, works, of course, at the South Point Hotel and Casino, and she talked about the affinity the community has for the Golden Knights, and it goes all the way back to tragic events in October of 2017, and she said, it, it's, I, I'm getting chill bumps just thinking about it. It's almost like this team needed to be there at that moment. I was in high school in New Jersey when September 11th, 2001 occurred. And uh, I was broadcasting my high school football games and I could go on and on to a whole podcast just on that story. But from a larger scene, Doug, we remember the New York Mets played the first game at Shea. Mike Piazza hits a home run uh, in the World Series. George Bush atop the mound throws a perfect strike at Yankee Stadium, Yankees against the Diamondbacks. The Mets and the Yankees and other sports teams, but really the baseball teams were playing at the time, how much the community rallied and the country rallied around those teams. But the Mets and Yankees have been around forever. The Vegas Golden Knights were brand new. They had played their final preseason game the day the shooting occurred and then on the road for two and then back home for their third game. And this is not only the first Golden Knights game. This is the launch of Major League Sports in Las Vegas, a city that's associated with sports but has never had its own Major League club. And the Golden Knights, it seems to me, arrived just in the nick of time. In those days before the first games, players, staff visited hospitals. I remember visiting a, the uh, police and emergency dispatch center, the, the call center, the 911 calls. I remember walking home from uh, the, the game, the preseason game that night, and I heard whispers of a, 
of a sniper and you didn't know what was going on. And I pulled up the the, uh, the app on the, your phone uh, so you could hear the the inbound and the outbound calls. Uh, and and I just thought, my goodness, these are true professional communicators. You know, what we do is, you know, we're the toy store of professional communication. And here are these people who are calm, cool, and collected in this catastrophic moment. And uh, then to go and meet them and to see them wearing Golden Knights jerseys. And then it's happened, uh, I've, I've been able to go back on the anniversary a few times through the years. And uh, it never uh, ceases to amaze me what they do. And as you can tell, uh, to talk about it never fails to choke me up because uh, not only of what happened to the, the 58 lives lost and those families, so many other people were affected by it, a community that you know hadn't really rallied around anything before. They didn't know how to get through a tragedy. Um, and the hockey team happened to be at the center of it and helped in that healing. So when the Golden Knights played that first game, they had started 2-0 on the road. They come back home and they scrapped the entire ceremony plan. And think about all the months that went into planning the first pregame ceremony in Golden Knights history. Vegas, the show, but it's still a great show. And it was going to be a great show that night. It was all scrapped. And in just a couple of days, they had to come up with something entirely new. And in a you know, David Ortiz, Boston Marathon bombing type moment, Derek Anglin, Golden Knights, alternate captain. Vegas did not have a captain at the time, but Derek had played minor league hockey here. He has settled in Las Vegas. He was the player designated to address the crowd. And when he said, we are Vegas strong, I mean, everybody was cheering at the top of their lungs and crying their eyes out at the same time. So on the radio, as I said, sometimes there are tears of joy, sometimes there are tears of sadness, and then there are tears of the kind we've just experienced. And then they played hockey. They dropped the puck and they scored four goals in the first 15 minutes. And Derek Anglin, a stay-at-home defenseman who doesn't score, scored one of the four goals. So it was just a storybook start. And uh, people just rallied around it. And they still do. Uh, all these years later, I mean, it's six-plus years now. It's funny to say all these years. But um, for Vegas sports history, it has been a long time now. But it is still a point for uh, those original misfits to inform the new coming Golden Knights how important of a date that is here. Well, I really wanted you to share that story for people that aren't aware of it. I think it's it's a great side of sports. So much of sports, we get immersed in the money and the contracts and the disputes. It's nice to hear when sports is used for healing. All right, at age 14, you're on the radio at Ridgewood High School calling hockey. And this, the, it, from what I've been able to discern, this is all you ever wanted to do. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm uh, five foot seven or, you know, the, the the state DMV might say five foot eight, maybe. Uh, I've been this tall since I was about 11. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you know, I was a, a very average high school baseball player, but I was the one who never shut up. I was always the one talking and uh, rooting on my teammates and you know, loved watching sports. And of course, growing up in the New York area, you hear so many terrific sports broadcasters and all of the sports. I'd start naming them, but we'd be here all day. And it occurs to me that, my goodness, you know, I have friends who play other sports. I, I like watching them and talking about them. And, you know, I, I do remember, uh, you know, there I, I we my mother came up with a journal that I 
kept for school, I think, in maybe fifth grade. And uh, this is, you know, shortly after the New Jersey Devils had won the Stanley Cup. And as a New Jersey kid, your team wins the championship. But uh, this is, uh, I had written about how Marv Albert and Boomer Esiason were calling Monday Night Football together on the radio. And how I thought that would be a cool job to have. And Marv Albert, you know, the voice of the Knicks and even the Rangers when I was younger. That struck something with me. And uh, in eighth grade, in a journalism class in Ridgewood, New Jersey, Guy Benson was a classmate of mine. We had not met prior to this class. And the principal of the school was the teacher for this class. His name was George Neville. And he asked us to go around the room and say, all right, troops, introduce yourself and let us know what gives you pizzazz. And when it came around to me, I said, I'm Dan Duva and I want to be a sports announcer. And it came around to Guy and Guy said, I also want to be a sports announcer. And lo and behold, Guy is now a very successful uh, political broadcaster on Fox News Channel, has a radio show, and he's, he's done very, very well in the non-sports world. But at that point in time, we forged a friendship that led to us creating what was ultimately public access TV channel for our high school. Nothing had existed before. And we just got our hands on a VHS video camera, a couple of microphones from Radio Shack, and we started going to games, our high school football games, uh, eventually hockey and basketball. And by the time we graduated, we were on TV in 280,000 homes in 48 towns in northern New Jersey. And uh, it, it's, again, a great story. And Guy and I are still very close. And uh, when we're home and we're together, we are uh, always associated with one another. And I still get people requesting tapes from, you know, the 2000 Ridgewood ice hockey season, which is amazing and fun because that's where we really got started and, and where we received a lot of encouragement. So to answer your question, yes, uh, uh, this is what I wanted to do. I think so much a part of that dream becoming a reality as a callback was the encouragement that Guy and I gave to each other. We challenged each other in a way that we probably didn't realize it at the time, but we cared about making the best broadcast. We wanted to be Marv Albert or, you know, pick your other New York sports announcer. And, uh, and we got a lot of encouragement from our, our families and the, uh, the, the community and the, the parents of our friends who were playing for the sports, the school itself, but it was very much student run. There was no faculty advisor. We got the parent organizations to give us money to buy better broadcast equipment. So we could have multiple cameras and things like that. And this is before YouTube, it was cable access TV. And we, uh, we just had a ball with it. We ended up over the course of our four years, we must've done, you know, 300 broadcasts of different things. It was it was a great formative experience. This sounds like a much better version of Wayne and Garth, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you, you you get out of Ridgewood High School and you go to Fordham. And I'm a big advocate, Dan, of college radio. And, I'm, and looking at your background, apparently you are too. And your involvement with your college radio station, WFUV. How important yeah. do you think college radio is overall? Oh, you said it. You said it. That that was it. And and I, you know, my, uh, you know, college path was somewhat circuitous in that my college career began at Syracuse, which was a great experience there. And I loved hearing your interview with Mark Johnson because his last year with the Orange was my first year at Syracuse. 
and uh, he wouldn't remember me, but I certainly remember him and some of uh, his advice that has stuck with me. And uh, that was a great experience. And again, it's not an unimportant and long story, but um, then from WAER in Syracuse and then WFUV at Fordham, these are stations that have been around since 1947. The number of broadcasters, many of them sports broadcasters, who've worked through those places in various iterations over the decades, want leaves you wanting to live up to their legacy. And when you're part of a radio station, you learn all of the components, everything that makes it go. That there's, you know, in the cases of WAER, WFUV, they're public radio stations and affiliates, student sports staffs, but uh, professional leadership. And you've got to raise money. <laughs> you've, you've got to get the membership numbers up. You've got to figure out programming and traffic and all of the stuff that makes a radio station go that as a high school student, you hear the announcers on the radio or on television and you think, well, oh, I just want to do that. But then you learn about all the other stuff that it takes to make it sound professional. And that was the goal. W-A-E-R, the call letters there, uh, it, it was explained to us, A-E-R stood for always excellent radio. And I try to, you know, keep that in mind. And F-U-V is Fordham University voice. Uh, but I, I've always felt an obligation to pay it forward because of the people who came at those radio stations before us. And now it's been a while since I've been a student, but, you know, like Marty Glickman in Syracuse or Vin Scully at Fordham. And think of all the people who've come through since then over the decades and who knows who will be next from those schools. So an important component for me was recognizing that history, uh, living up to the reputation and then trying to pay it forward to the next group of students. That's what's been important for me. And you're still working with young people in the off season, aren't you? And I, I admire that because when I was growing up, you could work at local radio and do high school football games and baseball and everything. Well, that's disappearing. There are less and less local stations giving young people opportunities to mess up and to learn right. how this craft is. And so how, how are you helping with that? Yeah, I, uh, I, <laughs> Love baseball, always have, always will. And I mentioned my my buddy from high school, Guy Benson. When we were looking to go off to school to continue our careers, or maybe start our careers uh, in broadcasting, uh, we wanted to go to different universities. And Guy went to Northwestern, I went to Syracuse, and then later Fordham, as you mentioned. But as we were talking about how would we continue working with one another, we had a good thing going. Was this the end? enter the Cape Cod Baseball League, which many will know as the preeminent college baseball summer league from Thurman Munson in the 60s to Jeff Bagwell in the 80s and Evan Longoria in the 2000s. A huge list of major league players who played college came through the Cape Cod League. It's been around 100 years now. There was no broadcasting of the kind. The internet was new. This is 2002-ish, I guess. And uh, we, again, long story, but we pitched the Chathamays the perhaps marquee franchise of the 10 team league on broadcasting the games on the internet and on the telephone, 1-800 telephone number. You could dial to listen to the games and, and then some games uh, on the radio too. And that's what we did. We started that and we figured we'd then go to college, make friends and help friends connect with other teams in the league and other teams in the league would continue doing that. 
And that's pretty much what happened. But then, you know, we did our four years together there during college and then we moved on. And then the, the team was wondering what's next. And so they asked, would you be interested, Dan, in helping hire the next group of broadcasters? And that has evolved. So it's been, you know, it's been a long time since I was a college student in broadcasting those games. But in the intervening years, I've um, selected the student broadcasters and coached them. And I've now, thank God, I have the time to be on Cape Cod in the summer, even if the Stanley Cup championship makes my arrival somewhat delayed. I can be with those students in person to get to know them, number one, and help them become better broadcasters, grow as people. And Cape Cod's a wonderful place to spend the summer. So uh, a lot of people, a lot of relationships over the years, but that's a big part of it for me. I, I get as much fulfillment, Doug, from spending time with those student broadcasters as I do from broadcasting a game myself. I say to them, and I meet it 100%, I expect to learn as much from the student broadcaster as the student should expect to learn from me. That's not hyperbole. Genuinely, we all have something to offer. I might have more experience, but that doesn't mean I can't learn from you, the student. Um, but it's got to be a two-way street. I, I just don't dole this stuff out like catnip. That's not how it works. It's got to be a back and forth. And I've been so proud to see so many of those students go on to do some really great things uh, over the years. And uh, I'm excited for the next group of students that will come through. It's really a, a wonderful experience that, uh, you know, of all the things that I've done, I, I'm, I'm right there. That's among my proudest accomplishments. It seems like the further along you go, the more rewarding that paying it forward becomes in your life, at least for most people that I've known. Uh, offhand question, does the play-by-play guy for the Stanley Cup champions get to keep the cup for a night? <laughs> you know, the four broadcasters who've been with the Golden Knights from the beginning, two on TV, two on the radio, that would be on television, Dave Gosher, Shane Knighty, on radio, me and Gary Lawless. The four of us were given a, a day with the cup, along with our communications department uh, here in Las Vegas. So uh, Gary, Gary Lawless is my radio partner and he's, he, he, he's somebody who's got a guy for everything. He knows everybody. And so he helped along with, uh, the rest of us, uh, they arranged a day at Red Rock country club here in Las Vegas, which is just down the street from our practice facility. And so we had a great event there and a lot of photographs and, uh, Dave Gosher and I were given the responsibility of helping folks drink out of the Stanley Cup. I was getting ready to say, there had to be some drinking out of the cup going on. So what was consumed here? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there there were a variety of beverages available, Doug, but I, I believe we had uh, some beer on tap. I'm not sure which one it might have been, but it had to be refilled uh, several times. And then you, you, you see how it goes, and then you begin offering advice to people to see the expression, the smile, the eyeballs when someone walks up to the Stanley Cup, never seen it in person, certainly not this close. And then their, their eyes are drawn to the engravings, all the names. You know, everybody's got a favorite team from their childhood. They're trying to find the team on the cup. And then you say, okay, here, we're going to lift it for you. Dave gets one side, I'd get the other side. <laughs> and they're like, watch, don't chip your tooth, you know, get your nose in there, you know, <laughs> watch it sloshing around in there if it's too full. And, um, and just to hear, that people talk about, oh, that was one of the best days of my life <laughs> from all these folks who we invited to come uh, and, and then for us to be together 
uh, with a lot of friends and family. That that was that was really neat. And I, uh, you know, the, the Stanley Cup is a really special trophy. And I, I've got to tell you that, you know, one of the coolest moments for me, and that day was special. It was just a few weeks ago. But if you go back to the night that the Golden Knights won the Stanley Cup, it was June 13th. And my parents, who still live in New Jersey, they had come out to Vegas for game one of the Stanley Cup final in 2018, which Vegas won. But then Vegas lost the next four in a row to the Washington Capitals, their first ever four game losing streak. So this time around, my dad called and said, hey, uh, you know, your mom and I are going to come out, but we're going to come for game five this time. I said, Dad, you know, there might not be a game five. He said, we're coming for game five. I said, okay. So when Vegas lost game three down in Florida, my dad might have been one of the happier Golden Knights fans on the planet because now here we were. So Vegas wins. Afterward, there was a reception for staff and family. And um, they had their Golden Knights championship T-shirts on before I was done with the broadcast. So, so, so I had come down and they had a you know drink waiting for me and then Eventually, here comes Captain Mark Stone with the Stanley Cup. It was right there. So to, you know, to have that moment with my parents, who I described earlier, had been so supportive over the years. That was that was really cool. So to see all those smiles, whether it's friends, family or perfect strangers seeing the Stanley Cup up close, it's a really neat thing. And I'm just honored to be part of it. All of that is so wonderful. The the story about taking the cup out and letting folks drink out of it, your parents being there, that's that's really good stuff, Dan. Thanks for sharing. I do want to get into some nuts and bolts. Yeah. Hockey as I'm watching it, and I'm not an aficionado. I enjoy the game. It seemed to be difficult. We, I call stock cars at 200 miles an hour, but they're big. That puck's pretty small. You've got guys flying around. Do you have to know the names of all the players before they ever come across the wall and get on the ice? Yes. Yes. And more than that, most helpful in associating players with each other for the benefit of the listener, and sometimes myself, comes in the form of line combinations and defensive pairs. So unlike other sports where, you know, there's a whistle to sub in a basketball player or, you know, pinch hitter in baseball, et cetera, hockey players change on the fly. So in the midst of play, I will have one eye on the puck and the other eye on the bench to see who's coming on. And if I see, for example, for the Golden Knights, number nine, Jack Eichel, well, that more than likely means that his wingers are coming on too, Jonathan Marcheseau and Ivan Barbashev. And that helps me get a grasp of who might then get the puck. You know, if there's someone on the near side, okay, I can see that's number nine and a pass over to the far side. Well, I can guess it's probably going to be number 81, Jonathan Marsh or so, because I just saw him come on the ice. And you get familiar with the Golden Knights players. You see them night in, night out. I almost don't need to see the sweater. I just need to see the, the body, the movement, or the right-handed, left-handed. It's a challenge for teams I don't see often. For example, the Philadelphia Flyers, an Eastern Conference team the Knights played recently. They have some young players, it's a rebuilding team, and some of these players I've never seen before, a couple of them I've never heard of before. So you you try to watch a recent couple of games, you get a feel for, okay, this is where they like to go. Are they left-handed? Are they big? Are they small? You try to find ways of identifying players because it is so fast. The last thing you want to do is misidentify a player, especially if it's his first goal. There are a lot of younger players we saw in Chicago, Connor Bedard, 
a Blackhawks young phenom. He just turned 18 years old in July, and he happened to score a goal in the opening two minutes of the game. I would I would be very disappointed in myself if I misidentified someone's first goal at the United Center. You know, that's a big part of it for me, that the identifying, picking guys up on the fly, it can be a challenge. And then you also find ways to, uh, you know, cheat a little bit if you can't see, <laughs> to buy yourself a couple of seconds so that you can you know, take a peek or hope that a number flashes up. Do you want, all right, I, I don't want to be like that person that goes up to comedian and says, say something funny. <laughs> but, but but give me a line exchange. Sure. All right. Yeah. So let's say um, we'll say that uh, Golden Knights get the puck out of their own zone. The defense with McNabb and Theodore starting the breakout. Here's William Carrier on the left side. The fourth line winger gets the puck deep and the Knights go for a change. The fourth line goes off. On comes the Knights top line. It's Jack Eichel with Jonathan Marchessault, Ivan Barbashev. They rush in on the forecheck. Eichel down the middle, Marcheseau on the right. Can they get the puck deep in the zone? A steal down in the right corner. Marcheseau gets the puck. He centers for Eichel, tipped a loose puck. Barbashev scores on the rebound. So there's, you know, you get a, just a sense of that transition. The fourth line did its job. It got the puck in. And the first line came on, retrieved the puck, and scores a goal. That's that's And that's almost exactly what happened in a recent night's game against the Flyers. All right. I want to go into cliche world here for just a second. So many players, and I don't know the percentage, are from former communist bloc countries or Eastern Europe or up above the Arctic Circle. There's a lot of consonants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, how much time do you devote or do you pray for a lot of cool nicknames that are much shorter? Oh, you said it, Doug. There was a minor league power play group when I was in Syracuse. This is the American Hockey League. It's like AAA. At Tampa Bay Lightning affiliate. So this is, I've been in Syracuse as a student. I was at Fordham, then Devils organization and the ECHL AA, then Syracuse again uh, to work professionally in the American League and also, believe it or not, teaching at Syracuse University. I don't know how they decided to let me do that. But doing the minor league hockey games, there was a group of five guys on the power play. Let's see if I can get them all straight. Nikita Kucherov, Nikita Nesterov, Vladislav Nemesnikov, Dmitry Korobov and JT Brown. <laughs> and JT Brown, who, by the way, has retired from playing, is now an analyst on the Seattle Kraken television broadcast. Uh, JT changed his Twitter handle to JT Brownov. So you had a couple of problems here because there were two Nikitas. So you couldn't just go Nikita because there were two of them. Uh, Vladislav Nemesnikov, thank goodness, goes by Vladdy. So I would really struggle with that one because of all of the syllables and consonants and the similarities of the names. I would say a name and then, you know, you know, you know, when you say something and you, you, you then question, did I just say that? <laughs> Which I've never experienced before or since. I, uh, I will try to find a way of helping the listener grasp who's doing what as efficiently as possible. The economy of words. Yeah, I'd like to say a player's full name, but if it's hindering the painting of the picture, well, that's not really helping, is it? So Barbashev, again, first name, Ivan. Barbashev is not a bad name. It actually rolls off the tongue pretty well. Thankfully, uh, Eichel is only two syllables. Marcia So has some flair to that. So you can 
you can have some fun with Marcia. So, uh, but you know, there are some names for players who I don't see often. I, I am so concerned about mispronouncing it. You know, there's a player for the sharks. Uh, Barabanov is the last name. And I always, is it Barabanov? Is it Barabanov? Is it Barabanov? There's so each time I feel like I've got to, I've got to focus on it, which is no good. Uh, you, you need, it needs to roll off your tongue. So I will, I'll uh, practice, you know, when warmups occur about half an hour before a game, I will with certain names and certain players do almost a mental play by play to make sure for that purpose, to make sure I've got those names squared away. Last thing I heard you on another interview talk about, well, the season's coming. It's time for me to get out my notes and colored markers. I'm a, I'm a write everything down person. All my notes for every event I do are handwritten. And my biggest excitement is going to office Depot to get new markers. So are you, how, how do you go about that kind of prep? Yes. I am so much a proponent of handwriting and, and Doug, you can, I'm sure speak to this. When you write something down, it does something in your brain that a keeps it there. You're processing it in a way that otherwise might not have happened. And because you're writing, it goes slower. So you have to think, and I swear, things come to mind while I'm writing that could not possibly have happened if I were typing it or dictating it. The act of writing, uh, David McCullough is one of my favorite authors. He passed away last year, but um, he is fond of saying it. He wrote all of his books on a typewriter. And he and people say, you know, you can write on a computer. He said, no, like, that's too fast. I want to go slower. <laughs> you just get more out of it. Now, I, I have found that sometimes I do need to write the same things over and over again. And that I've I've moved off to a, a document on the computer because I don't need to write down that, you know, Jack Eichel is from North Chelmsford, Massachusetts, every single Golden Knights game. But all of the notes that I do, my line chart, where who's playing with who, the recent numbers, trends, stories, quotes, all of the material pertaining to a particular game, I write by hand. And yes, I have many colors, <laughs> highlighters. Uh, I'm not sure that anyone could decipher the code of what all of the colors mean. I've been asked a couple of times and I've attempted to explain it, but then I realized uh, my brain knows what the colors mean. I'm not sure that I know what the colors mean, but it works. <laughs> that's all. That's all it counts. Well, Dan, thanks so much for your time. This has been really insightful. Uh, we will try to track you down. We'll be in Vegas again in March when NASCAR gets out there. And uh, if, if you're free, get out to the track. If not, I've been to one of the Golden Knights games, uh, one of the, the best sporting events I've ever attended. Well, well, thank you very much, Doug. It's a pleasure to chat with you. I enjoy listening to your show. It's always fun to hear what other people in, in our business think, their experiences, what they talk about. So thank you for this wonderful program. And thanks you, uh, thank you for that invite. I, I hope to see you when you're, you're in Vegas next. And I'm looking forward to listening to more of your program. All right, Dan. Thank you very much. And good luck to you and your team the rest of this year. We appreciate you. Thank you very much.